history of praying prayers of illumination. And basically, that's a way of saying, God, we're, we, okay, we've all come here. We've invited and welcomed one another here. Now we want to invite and welcome you to come and illuminate our hearts. And so it's an invitation to the Spirit uh, to come and do a work in our midst. So I'm going to teach you a song, a really simple prayer of illumination that I use with my seminary students. And I will, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to let you listen to this once. Hopefully the volume will be high enough. And then we'll go back and, uh, and sing it together. Oh, that's perfect. simple melody to remember. So now I'll go back to the beginning and we'll sing it together. And since I've heard you all sing before and it, it usually works out pretty good. So. <laughs> Books in the same way that we are in school, high school students. 
Uh, we're not just reading it for history. We're not just reading it for facts to kind of pass a test at the end of the day. Really, this is about hearing the voice of God addressed uh, through one another and also through that text. So let's actually begin. Beth and I have had a couple exchanges over the past week or so, maybe one or two exchanges, about uh, the text last week. And I just wondered if any of you had had any new insights or questions that emerged around Genesis 11 that you might want to share with the group. Yeah, please do. Go for it. Well, I have to say I actually struggled a lot with it. Yeah. Because when we started talking about, you know, why, you know, why, why Abraham? Why is he right. the chosen one? Then I also started thinking about Sarah. Yeah. And, you know, where we have a text up at, or, it, you know, the text where it says, you know, she was, I forgot that, who it was, that, well, that she was taken as his wife. Oh, um. Isn't that, what's Pharaoh. the, the Pharaoh? Oh, the, the, oh, the, she wife. was brought into, right, yeah, brought into his harem. Which, yeah. you know, I, yeah. that's where I struggle. I thought, you know, that, that's pretty awful. She was no held kidding. captive and repeatedly raped. Right. I think, I think that is not, uh. That is absolutely an appropriate assumption. Yeah, I think you're right. Where was God for her? Yeah. Where was God? This is a good question, and it ties into... What's your question? Or what's your name? Liv. Liv? L-I-V. Okay. Liv uh, was courageous last week and also wondered about... Really, I I think Liv's question had to do with why God really picks favorites. Is that right? and then and then kind of and then Pharaoh also suffers as a result of um, uh, you know bringing in this wife uh, or bringing in this this he thought it was a sister and uh, why is it and what's what's so first of all let me say this first of all that's profoundly disturbing it is it is profoundly disturbing and we can't I for one cannot answer the why question um, I we can talk about what the text says and what it communicates. But there are many times when I'm reading the Bible and I've been reading it for a long time when I have the exact same reaction. How could this happen? Um, Let me give you another example that's equally disturbing. In Genesis 22, we have the story about how um, God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, uh, to sacrifice Isaac. Well, God ultimately intervenes at the end of that story. And Isaac is not killed, and the son goes on. Well, if you turn, though, to the book of Judges, a very similar story emerges, but with a different child. In this case, Jethro's daughter. And what happens to Jethro's daughter is that she is, um, her father makes a dumb vow. And he says, God, if you give me this victory, I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. Uh, you know, if I win the victory and come home, and the first thing that comes out of my house, I will sacrifice it to you. And, of course, he wins the victory, and the first thing that comes out of his house is his daughter, who is there to greet him. And so, the story is about how she goes and mourns the fact that she is not married, and then she is killed. Where was God? God was there to save Isaac. God was not there to save Jethro's daughter, whose name we don't know. Um, these are disturbing stories. And they are what one author calls texts of terror. And I think that that deep repulsion that we feel, that, that, that 
protests within our hearts, I actually think we should direct that straight back to God. Um, there is a very long tradition in the Hebrew Bible, specifically in the Psalms, of, of uh, uh, prayers, people praying, asking why, or how long, or why, or when will you do what you have promised, God? Why is the world this way? And these songs are, songs, psalms are typically called laments, uh, or they could also be called protests. You know, the book of Psalms is divided into five books. Just like the Pentateuch is divided into five books. Now, some people have noticed that the Pentateuch has a lot of God talking to Israel. You know, you have the laws and these things like this. And and so the Pentateuch may be God's word to Israel. What the Psalms in their five parts are, reflect, are Israel's word back to God. And more often than not, those words are harsh, and they are critical, and they are full of questions. Um, and so what I want to say to the two of you is that, first of all, your protest, this um, impulse that you have to be critical of the text, belongs in the church. Uh, in the church, we have a hard time registering critique, and we have a hard time leaving God questions as questions and letting them hang there. Um, I've, I've, uh, I've, I've argued in, in some places that what the church should really be is a place where you ha- a place of the raised hand in praise to God, but also of the raised fist, saying, God, where? yes, this is a great and glorious world, but not all the time, and maybe mostly not. <laughs> and so where are you? Where is this distant God? So that doesn't answer your question like why, and, and I don't even want to justify God in that story. I don't want to try and get God off the hook is what I want to say. I want your, um, your protest to be heard as clearly as possible. So what, what, what's, you want to respond, or do either, do either of you want to live? What do, you think of, what do you think about that proposal, though, congregation, about this kind of honest speech before God? It's almost like you have to get inside the story to see the guts. Like you could yeah. read that quickly and not think yeah. about what Karen thought of. It's a brilliant comment. And, yeah. And so it's like, I mean, I mean, that's how it, this can get. You can't like just read it. You have to like literally hang with it. Dr. Chan, I don't know if this is taking it off track, but can you speak a little bit briefly about how those texts of terror speak to someone who has experienced that in their lives and the fact that it's present in the Bible? Sure. Yeah, I think... um, So, the human experience is this. If you were to to get, you know, five... Let's say ten people in this congregation together in one room and say, tell me about some... Give me some testimonies. Tell me about your story with God. You might get a couple people who would say things like this. I was in my deepest, darkest hour, and God saved me at that moment. You would get stories like that. I bet if you asked your pastors, they would also tell you stories of people who who have been uh, uh, delivered in in these kind of last-minute ways or in ways that we might say, that is supernatural. Somehow God must be caught up in that. At the same time, you would also get the stories of people who could not give that kind of testimony, 
who are maybe still living in that darkness or who didn't experience deliverance at that time of need. And I think the fact that we have stories like Isaac, who is saved, and Jethro's daughter, who is not, really just speaks to the reality of the world that we live in. And the fact that, I think, the, the fact that you have people who suffer these kinds of things means, and the fact that the Bible doesn't give one answer to, have, to kind of explain away that, uh, that suffering means that, we, that our job at that moment is not to explain. When there are people suffering, your job is not to explain how God is somehow working out God's will or somehow needed another flower in the garden of heaven, you know, and that's why God had to take somebody away at such a young age. Our job is not to explain. I think our job is to suffer with that person and to do exactly what you did and say, what you experienced is absurd, and I am as angry as I can be about it. And I think that's, in my view, these stories invite us into that greediness and say, we're not there to explain. We are there to suffer with people in the same way that Christ suffered with us. There's, there's a veil that, we can't, that our human knowledge can't penetrate beyond. There are some things that we simply have to say, I don't know. So Does that, does that get... You want to follow up with Ernie? No, I was just, as I was thinking about it, Jethro's daughter's yeah. friends all walked and mourned That's right. with her. So in some ways, point. this is a text that tells us how to be with people who are in the midst of some horrible experience that we can't fix. That is a remarkable comment. Um, I forgot that detail when I was telling the story. But the way the story goes is that uh, Jethro's daughter's friends, her girlfriends, go out into the mountains and they mourn with her uh, because she will not... It, it, it talks about how... The text talks about how she will not... Uh, uh, well, she'll be a virgin, right? She'll never, in other words, have children. Um, and that's... and that, there, I say that it has to do with children as opposed to just simply sex because within this culture, um, having children was a deeply important part of a woman's identity. And so I would argue that that's really what's being mourned there is not the fact that, you know... She doesn't get to know somebody intimately, but rather that she doesn't get to participate in this aspect of femininity in the ancient world that is so important. So I think, I think it's beautiful what you just said, that those friends model for us what we are called to do uh, when, when we see people suffer. Yeah. Other comments, this is tough stuff. And I actually, yeah, go for it. So, with what you were saying, what Lisa was saying, yeah. the working through it, that if God was there like he was for Isaac, yeah. for all of those situations, it would eliminate our vocation. Hmm, say more about that. That's really interesting. We have free will. Like what Lisa was saying, you know, the, the words that always come back to me for that, you know, like with, with Jethro's daughter, is that Part of our human experience and part of what Jesus experienced while here with us yeah. was witnessing the suffering. Was bearing experiencing witness, it, yeah. Experiencing it, being in the hole with the person that's suffering. Yeah. But if if God was there for everyone like he was for Isaac, that all would be Eliminate. We wouldn't have a task. We, we wouldn't have the things to witness. We wouldn't have the choices to make that our free will 
the, the challenge that God set before us would be gone. Hmm. Yeah. Does anyone want to follow up on that comment? That's a really fascinating comment. Maybe it is supposed to be so disturbing that we're angered by it and do something. Maybe that's right. Yeah. Because if God did everything. So sometimes I think, this is really going in a fascinating direction, sometimes I think we read the Bible and assume that what we're going to find there are stories about how we should behave. That when we read these texts that we're going to find these exemplary examples, you know, these exemplary people who show us what it means to live the life of it. Sometimes we find that. We do. That, that's there sometimes. I would, I would want to add a different wrinkle to it, though. I would want to say that the Bible is always revelatory. That's a big word. That means it's always showing us something, giving us insight, giving us, uh, uh, giving us revelation, helping us to see things in new ways. But what it reveals is not always the same in every story. Sometimes it reveals the deep, deeply depraved and dark nature of humanity. The fact that, that you have a king who would take, uh, really, take as his own property and seize this woman and bring her into his harem, um, that reveals something about humanity. Uh, and then the fact that you have this Jethro guy who makes a dumb vow to God and then chooses to fulfill it, that also reveals something about humanity. But it doesn't provide us with an example. It doesn't reveal some kind of model of faith. I would say what it reveals is the kind of world that we live in and the kind of people that we that we so often are. So I think we have to kind of read the Bible in, in a slightly different way. Yeah, go ahead. And it doesn't always tell us how God's feeling about that. That's right, yeah. And so we're, we kind of assume the silence means that he's okay with it, where he might be as mad or, or as you know more, more upset than we even are about the fact that that there are so many things. There are so many things that we don't know. Um, Martin Luther, the kind of founder of this Lutheran church—not this one, but the larger one—said that we can talk about God in two different ways. We can talk about a God who is revealed, and he would point to the cross, and he would say, "You want to find where God is? You want to see where God is? You have to look at the cross." But then we'd also say, "There's also this God who is hidden. This hidden God." Uh, and we can't know anything about that God. That is the God uh, that, that is beyond the, the limits of our intellect, beyond our, the limits of our ability to see. And we, when we come across that, we simply have to say, I don't know. One thing I know is that Christ died for us on the cross, and that I am called to die also on that cross. So that's, how, that's at least how I think Martin Luther might work with this and say, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. There are a lot of gaps and dark areas within the Bible that we just, the why question just doesn't work there. And we have to say, I don't know, it disturbs me, God, I hate that you are depicted this way, but I don't know. I don't know how to move beyond. Other comments? I think this is all really helpful. Kind of disturbing. Yeah. So I'm still thinking about something you said last week, and that was, um, where is God in the disturbance or yeah. the pain or the hurt? And this is what I've been thinking about. So much in our life, we just want to get past the pain quickly. Yeah. 
thinking that God is going to be on that other side yeah. with some, reveal himself in some way. Yeah. And is our role with each other just to say, push right now. It hmm. sucks. It's yeah. so hard. But where is God in this? And it just changes everything. It changes it from wanting a seemingly easy, perfect life to say, are we able to listen, especially when we're trying to think about what's next or what a future may hold, but to know that that is where God is showing up. That's not yeah. an, an off-limit area. I don't know. It, I yeah. guess for me it was, don't push so hard to get through that, that that may be the spot. Mm-hmm. That's that next thing of what you are needing can come, and then to Leslie's point, the role of a community not to push someone through that, like hurry up and get done with that sad time, right? But to be with them and just say, push, I'm here with you as you're cut out getting through that. I don't know. No, I, I thought that. I mean, that was I really important. We, the whole theme for these couple weeks has been journey, right? And so last week. Beth had commented to me about, or something I had said about how God is, I asked how many of you are in a place of kind of disturbance, where you felt maybe between points, or you felt like, gosh, my life, the equilibrium of my life is just so off right now, I don't, I know where I'm coming from, kind of, I know that I'm moving away from it, but I don't know quite where I'm going, and um, to not rush through that because God, I think, is bound up in all of that as well. I mean, the, we have this. This is the kind of God that we have. This is a God who has experienced the fullness of humanity from birth to death, and also new life from death. And so that's the kind of God we can expect to find. And that God will also be present when we are going through birth, death and new life. And sometimes that transition between those things can be really painful. But I, I, I mean, I, I fundamentally agree with you. I think we, in fact, are called to be God to one another in those moments. Not that we're all God, but we are called to be Christ's hands and feet to one another in those moments so that when we do wonder where is God, we can actually come alongside one another and say, God has called me to be here with you now. God has called me to speak words of hope or simply to be with you now. High school kids, many of you uh, uh, have friends who, maybe it doesn't matter if they're Christians, it doesn't matter at all, but maybe they're you know, going through difficult times, problems at home, problems with addictions, whatever it might be, you may be called to be Christ to that person at that moment as that person moves between different places in life. Um, that may be what God has called you to right now. And so, I don't know. I don't know if that kind of gets to what you're saying. Did you want to add anything else? No, that's good. I I just think I saw a different side of the rock. Yeah. Um, It was helpful. Yeah. Well, um, I want to read a a text that I think, in light of the conversation so far, you all might appreciate. Um, I'm going to have you read in in your tables. I think that will work. We'll just read in your tables. And, um, or if there, if there are some tables that are just full of people of one age, why don't you mix it up a little bit and uh, see if we can change that around. Where's the clock? 
Oh, I guess we can go right here. 7.26 right now. I want you all to read a very short story, and uh, you get 10 minutes to discuss it. So you're going to go up to 36. We're reading in Genesis 32. 32. Yeah, chapter 32. Uh, 32, 22. Yeah. Sorry, too many twos. 32, 22, 32. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, just remember, what you're going to do is ask one another, what did you hear in that text? What sorts of questions emerged for you? Uh, where did you felt, where did you feel addressed, or where did you All right, so this, is, are there any, uh, any wrestlers on this room? <laughs> any wrestlers in this room? No? Um, oh, okay, we have a couple over here. I, I don't think this move is legal. <laughs> um... What uh, what came up in your conversations? If you had this, if you had the author of this text sitting right here in front of you, what would you want to ask that person? Was he physically wrestling, or is it more an analogy? Yeah, did you all hear that? Was was Jacob physically wrestling with this uh, with this divine being, with this God, uh, or is it kind of an analogy? What do you all think? How would you answer that question? I thought it was an analogy. Okay, of what? What do you think? Um, that you know, yeah. I guess that he had been um, being troublesome and prevailing his whole life over others, and now yeah. he finally gets in this ultimate fight and um, with himself, and he's struggling with himself, and 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 kind of almost trying to force this blessing upon him and, and get this make this change happen to him, and he still, in the end, loses, and it's surprised that he still, even though he lost, he still gets the blessing. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of strange to figure out who actually wins, right? Because it says that he prevails. But yet, it's clear also that the, uh, you know, this divine being is able to pull this move on him and injure him. Um, yeah, what, else, what, what else do you make of this story? Well, what, what I found in it was kind of be still to hear God, because he, he sent everything he owned, his family, all his possessions, his cattle, his sheep, whatever he had. And I think in our modern age, when we're so busy, hmm. The TV with the tablets with everything that we mm. have, we as a society have trouble being still and really listening to God. And that's when he encountered God when he was when there was no He is all by himself, yeah. 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 What else do you find here? Yeah. Did he have this injury the rest of his life? Yeah. And was it something to remind him of the struggle? Yeah, he does not leave this encounter with God unscathed, right? He actually leaves with a scar. Um I mean, I mean, how many of you have scars that also have stories attached? <laughs> Almost all of the scars that, yeah, you, all, all the scars that live with us for the rest of our lives usually have stories attached to them. And this was certainly the case for Jacob. Yeah. Yeah, please. But, but he's not passive at all. I mean, he might, no. he might be in a quiet place, but how many people demand the blessing from God? <laughs> well, and what's interesting, <laughs> good point. Um, actually, we're going to read another story in a second where we find more people like that. Um, uh, not that many, though. Now, notice that he is he gets a new name, doesn't he? What's his new name? Israel. So, on the one hand, this is a story about Jacob, this kind of wily guy who... Uh, you know, he cheats his brother out of all kinds of stuff. That's part of the reason why he's running. Uh, if you read a little bit earlier, you'll find that Jacob is afraid of, he's afraid of his brother Esau, who he had cheated two times over uh, to get a blessing and to get more of an inheritance. 
And so he knows that his brother Esau is approaching him with 400 men, and Jacob doesn't know why. And so Jacob kind of sends his, uh, uh, sends his family and goods on, and he is then left alone. And so that's kind of the, the larger context of the story. But on, so on the one hand, it's a story about Jacob, right? This individual guy, this wily guy. But on the other hand, it's also the story of Israel, this nation, that also has a long history of wrestling with God. How many of you have heard of the Holocaust before? Yeah, yeah. Hashoah is what it's called among Jews, and in Hebrew, it's this, this destruction. And in, um, in the wake of the Holocaust, as Jews began to think, what does this mean that God abandoned six million of us? Right? I mean, this is the question for many Jews. How can, now remember this, the Jews are a people who every year celebrate at Passover, Maybe some of you, maybe you have Jewish friends and they celebrate Pesach or they celebrate Passover. And every year they celebrate that God delivered them from whom? Pharaoh in Egypt. Every year they celebrate this. And then the Holocaust happens. Six million of the chosen people left to burn. In, in many cases, literally. Where was God? And you might say, well, you know, God was working through the, uh, through the allied powers. Well, maybe so, but six million too late. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And so Jews in, in the wake of the Holocaust have had to ask this question. What kind of God is this that we're attached to? And one response to that has been a whole body of literature called, that you could call protest theology. And it's, based, it's everything from stories and poems uh, simply to, to sermons and statements that, God, you weren't there. And the accusation, and, and, and there's no hesitation to lodge that accusation and for that to be an active part of, of, of Jews' faith. And so we see all throughout Israel's history that Israel is also this nation that wrestles with its God, that doesn't kind of listen to God passively, but is actually a little bit feisty. Uh, feisty is not, that's a little bit too playful of a word, is aggressive in its relationship with God. And it's, it's remarkably, it's God, God's covenant with them makes the space available for them to say, you know what, God, you have attached yourself to us, so now you're going to pay for it. <laughs> and now you're going to have to deal with those consequences because we're not, we know that you've made promises to us and we're going to hold you to them. And on some level, that's what Jacob is doing here, is he is holding to God and saying, I know that you have promised to bless me, because God has promised to bless Jacob, um, and Jacob wants it now. Quite a character. What else, what else did you find in this text? Youth. I want to hear from our youth. What did, what did you find? What compelled you? What was weird about this text? What would you want? What else do you want to know about this story that you just read? Yeah, go ahead. Was Jacob expecting to find God in the in the um, in the like forest or wherever? In this dark area where he was? Yeah, because like That's all a of a sudden he just like leaves his family or whatever, and all of a sudden he just like walks in there, and then he like bam, he's there, and then they start wrestling. Yeah. There's no, like, 
there's not like a yeah, it's not like an introductory like right. Is he just walks in expecting to find God and then just instantly mad at him or like? Yeah. This is such a good question. You know, um, the Bible has so many gaps in it. <laughs> Um, and this is, we don't know why Jacob stays behind. All that we know is that he is alone, that he isolates himself. That's all that we know, is that he isolates himself. Maybe because he knew that he was going to have this encounter, we really don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Is it's it, a good is question. Is it possible that, that Jacob's intention is to run? Ooh, that's interesting. Huh? To kind of abandon his family? Now he's, he's on the other yeah. side of the river, and he's on the other side of the yeah. river, and right. everybody is on the vulnerable side, yeah. he's not. Mm-hmm. Well, given Jacob's track record <laughs> of, of pursuing self-interest, I don't think that's beyond the realm of possibility. That's possible. She is unconvinced. Yeah, Pastor. One of, one of our guys talked about um, being in a relationship. Yeah. This is about a, and in a relationship, we were kind of kicking around the question, is it a good idea to wrestle with hmm. that? Is that a good thing to do? But the implication was really, oh, in a relationship, sometimes you're wrestling. Huh. Because that's that's being authentic. Wow. Sometimes in a, if we're alone, and there's a, a pause and, and silence authenticity, and they receive a blessing, and we're still. And other times, that might lead us into a different kind of encounter, yeah. where we don't go at it with God because we don't understand what God is up to. I mean, the earlier comments. And then it's not even clear, well, was he better off? He better off. Well, he had a blessing, but then God <laughs> also smacked him on the hips and, and uh, walked. What do you think? What else does this table think about that? What, that's a really interesting idea. Wrestling in relationships. Say more about that, you guys. <laughs> There's a lot faster. <laughs> a lot of brilliance coming from our youth tonight. Yeah. Uh, first. At the beginning of verse 26, then it said, let me go, but the day is breaking. <laughs> because we have to stop now that it's light. That might be safe. Right. Yeah, what do you think's happening? Any, any thoughts about <laughs> that? I just thought that was... It, it is interesting. So the, within, the, within the, this culture, the morning time is often standard, understood to be a time of deliverance. Sorrow may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Uh, the, the, the morning was a kind of sacred moment of deliverance in the day. Even if you look at the broader cultures of the Near East, like Egypt, um, Egypt uh, understood nights to be moments when the god of chaos would chase the sun god in the night, and there was this danger that it might not come. And so when it came, it was a cause of, of, of celebration. And so this may be kind of reflecting the cultural background that, that uh, the night was a time of danger, but that deliverance came, the end of threat came in the morning. That would, that would just be my take on it. I think this is kind of, has to do with cultural background. Yeah? Um, kind of countering like what they said about a relationship, I asked the question to my group, like, is it still a healthy relationship with yeah. God? 
if somebody isn't wrestling them and they just like they come to that time where they're just opening openly like, okay, you're here, I'm not going to think about it or like question it, like that's still good faith. Like if somebody I don't know how to like word it. So let me see. Let me see if I understand you correctly. Are you saying that maybe this is an example of a dysfunctional relationship? No, it's like, I just came to the question: like, is it still a healthy relationship if they're not like wrestling? Oh, if they're I see. Not, like, so you really are complimenting them. I think you're saying something complimentary. That all healthy relationships involve conflict. Some some kind of conflict. Yeah. No, I think, I think you're making a really good point. And I, so I, this is exactly the point I was trying to make earlier. If church is not a place where we are actually honest about our questions with God, to God, or our questions about our holy scriptures, or our questions about why there is suffering in the world, all these things, then our churches are failing. If, if our churches are not places where we can bring those things before God, raise our fist in the same way that we can raise our hands, um, then I think churches fail. And, and I think the same is true of relationships too, you know, sort of human to human relationships. That if our relationships with one another do not have a kind of honesty where we can be in conflict about really hard issues, then those relationships are also failing. Um, and so I would say, the, I think the both, the both of you are absolutely right. And that we should insist on having that kind of honest and, and authentic relationship with God. And like I said earlier, it's all over the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, go ahead. I think this story is quite indicative of what you're saying. Jacob is in, the, is in transition. That's and, right. And my interpretation of this is that he is struggling with that, with that change that, that mm. is being placed upon him. Mm. And yeah, he's not really a holding guy before this moment. And he you is know, a daft writer. <laughs> he's a man of character, in my mind. You know, he's... I, I wouldn't trust him in my home, probably. You know, but, you know, at this moment, we see this person, we see change, we see transition, we see him arguing with God about what the expectation is, and as the light is coming upon the moment... My interpretation yeah. of this is that Jacob is saying, okay, bless me. Yeah. Give me the strength. Mm. Give me what I need. And God does it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I, I'm probably reading a little more between the lines than what the, what the scripture There's a lot of says. space between those lines, yeah. as some of you have noticed. But I think in moments of transition, it's, it's difficult to... You know, to be able to to fulfill things without asking God for help. Well, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. Jacob is Jacob is sort of like the Han Solo of Genesis. Like he's he's out for himself. You know, like he's out to get to get money and stuff. At least in the first episode, right? He kind of changes. Like, but uh, but uh, and and so, what does that say about this kind of God that associates? I, I saw your hand. Um, that, so, that, that associates God's name with this kind of person. What it says to me is that God does not perfect us before God decides to use us or be associated with us or slap God's name on us to love, to love us and to claim us. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Well, I just, my interpretation of this is maybe a little bit more simplistic, but um, it, it's the idea of it's all right to wrestle with your faith. They sure. ask questions like, how can we have harems and holocausts and things like that, right. and still be blessed. Hmm. It's okay. 
I, I mean, I, I don't think that's necessarily simplistic. I think, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah. Well, let's look at one other. We're going to close by looking at a New Testament story. And uh, this is a story that Martin Luther pointed to when he was reading this text. So it's in Matthew 15. So go ahead and uh, open. Oh, you know what? Let me just put it on the board. That'll be easier. 15 verse 21 in case you're following along. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. Jesus ignores her. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away. She keeps shouting after us. He answered, now this is now this is not very nice, okay? He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He said, It's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Wow. Now some people try to like make because they want to maintain the nice Sunday school picture of Jesus. They try to say things like, well, Jesus was kind of talking about a shih tzu, you know, it was like a cute little dog. You know, Jesus was like, oh, you're just one of the little doggies. Um, no. <laughs> He's calling her a dog. He's calling her a dog. This is an insult. Jesus is insulting her. Then she says in verse 28, uh, or verse 27, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, why do you think Martin Luther connects the Jacob story to this one? What are the similarities you see? They both rebuttal God. <laughs> yeah, pretty bold, isn't it? They both say no to God. In the, in the case of Jacob, his way of saying no was not giving in. He wouldn't, he wouldn't submit to, to God's power. He kept fighting back. And this woman also says she doesn't take Jesus' no for an answer. She insists on something more. She knows who she's talking to. What else do you see in this story? Yeah. A very wise woman preached on this this summer. Oh! And, and she talked about how um, this woman changed God's mind. Yes. And it was right. the first time I'd ever... I, I thought she made it up. Because I never thought of that. You thought she made it up? Is that what you thought? I was like, no. In, in Minnesota, you actually never know if people like what you're preaching. Because if you're standing back by the door, like, oh, thank you, Pastor, thank you, oh, it's so wonderful. And so, you know, you, you, it's around the dinner table that, you know, <laughs> you find out what people really think about your preaching. But I, I think she's absolutely right. And you know what, Pastor Beth is, um, would probably tell you this also, that this isn't the only story in which God changes God's mind. What I, what I think is interesting is in both stories that they could take a human response yeah. and consider that in the, that's the part that, I mean, and it's scary to think of that. Like, yeah. we could have that impact or that's yeah. the depth of relationship. Um, and then 
what is that, what are those words that we each hold inside our own heart mm. that could be that same thing? Mm. And is that not powerful? That this is going to happen with Moses twice. Moses will twice change God's mind in Numbers 14 and then earlier in Exodus 32 through 34. Um, uh, God will change God's mind about Nineveh, about destroying Nineveh. God, Jesus changes his mind here. And so this is not a kind of abnormal thing, but I think you're right. It points to the kind of relationship that God invites us into. It's actually a kind of relationship that the American church doesn't really talk about that well. Because we like to do kind of the celebratory thing, you know, like everything's happy, everything's good, no need to be in conflict with each other or with God. When in fact, you, you don't have to walk too far to find out that there are many things, many reasons to be in conflict with God. Um, and uh, I think our Christian, we should, we should encourage one another to enter into this kind of old relationship with God. Or we are honest with God. Yeah, go ahead. Um, this is a little kind of bit off topic, but I like this passage because it kind of shows that um, in like a God to human relationship, that it's not just God making all the decisions that wow. the human can like kind of contribute to the relationship to. Wow, from the mouths of theologians. That was a nice combination. No, that's powerful. I don't think it's off topic at all. That, that we can contribute, wasn't that the word that you used? That we actually contribute, not only to the world, in like some kind of graduation speech way, like, oh, you can go change the world. But God, you know, but God says, you can actually contribute to God's own life. Whoa. Now that kind of, that changes how you think about prayer, doesn't it? I think we sometimes think about prayer as just this kind of, you know, we just do it because we're commanded to. We don't really expect it to have much of an impact, right? Much less change God's mind. Well, there are a lot of biblical texts that might disagree with that assumption. And I think you're right that these texts encourage us to approach God boldly. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Pastor, I think it's interesting. It's such a reversal of how we normally see things. I think most people would think that. You know, if you shake your fist at God or wrestle with God, oh, look out. You yeah. are going to be cursed. Right? Yeah. You're going to get a curse, so shut up. Yeah. Don't, don't go there. Right. Just shut up and accept it. Yeah. Um, and yet, it's the opposite in these texts. That far from a curse, these, these persons are surrounded by grace and, and given a blessing. Yeah, she is blessed. It's, um, <laughs> it's the authentic engagement of them. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Please. Yeah. Well, and even in asking, in getting that blessing, right, she's not just getting a blessing for herself, but she's speaking for a whole peoples, right? He talks yeah, about yeah. how he's only come for the, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yeah, she's true. not of that. Right. And in her wrestling and in her demanding mm. and in the fulfillment of her wrestling, that, that blessing is extended out into a larger community. In fact, to us. Right? Unless, you have, unless you have Jewish ancestry, then in many ways, this woman represents you and me. The, the Gentiles, those who are not part of the, the family of Abraham, but who get to become part of it, 
because of uh, because what Christ does is break open that covenant for those of us who are not within the covenant of Abraham. So I think that's a really good point to end on. Let's start with or let's end with a word of prayer, okay? Let's pray. Gracious God, we have touched many deep and difficult topics and ones that weigh heavy on the heart and that also challenge uh, many of the standard ways that we think about you and that we think about our life in this world and our relationships uh, to others. I pray that you will give us insight this week as we continue to ponder these difficult passages and that wherever we are in our journeys, that we will be, that we will be in a posture of both trust that you're somehow involved, even if you're hidden, but also this boldness to approach you with, uh, with, um, with requests and with demands, clinging to you uh, according to the promises that you've given to us. So thank you for these stories, and I pray that they will stir our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.